Gothic St. Patrick's Cathedral is more than just a stop-off during Manhattan's annual St. Patrick's Day Parade. The prominent cultural attraction is known for its grand architecture and for being a center of Catholic life. And now a new book takes us on a musical and historical journey of this church. Good morning, I'm Robin Shannon, and this is Fordham Conversations. Today I'm speaking with Salvatore Basil, author of Fifth Avenue Famous, The Extraordinary Story of Music at St. Patrick's Cathedral. Salvatore, welcome. Thank you very much for having me, Robin. Now, the St. Patrick's Cathedral that we know of today, the one that takes up that whole block, um, uh, the whole New York City block, isn't really the original church, correct? Not at all. So what happened to the original building, and why did the church have to move to Fifth Avenue? At the time, the early, mid-19th century, St. Patrick's Cathedral was down on Mott Street, uh, Mott and Spring and Mulberry. It took up that entire block, but then again, downtown, that's a much smaller block. That was, in its day, a very impressive structure. It had been uh, dedicated around 1815 and then enlarged in the 1830s, and it had received its final form by the mid-19th century. But Bishop John Hughes, at the time, wanted something uh, more prominent. Mm -hmm. Uh, Catholicism in the city was not a very popular thing. There was a lot of backlash against it. And he was famed for being quite a feisty fellow. Mm -hmm. And he had also purchased a block of land on Upper Fifth Avenue. At that time, that was way out of town. No one one bothered to go there, really. This was at 50th Street and Fifth Avenue. Well, they were originally intending that it would be a graveyard, but it turned out that there was so little topsoil and so much bedrock that it was impossible to dig graves. So they thought, we need another... Uh, use for this block, and the bishop, the the bish- yes, and so yeah, let let's build a cathedral, and they did. As, as it happened, by the time that it was ready to be dedicated, the city had moved up to meet it, and many of the Protestant churches in town. Now I can't absolutely swear this, but right. suddenly many of the Protestant churches in town had built their own churches ah, right on that same area. A little competition. Yeah, just a bit. Mm-hmm. So. That uh, the old cathedral is still there. It is St. Patrick's Old Cathedral. It, it is now a parish church rather than a cathedral, but uh, it's a still a very lively parish. It has a beautiful organ that was installed in 1869, and it can still be operated by cranking the bellows. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> now, Salvatore, uh, what drew you to write Fifth Avenue Famous, and how did you decide to focus on the musical history? of St. Patrick's Cathedral? Well, uh, I'm a musician by trade. I've worked at St. Patrick's for the last 12 years as a cantor and in the choir. Mm -hmm. What had happened at the 2004 125th anniversary, the music department decided to have an anniversary concert. And our director of music, uh, Dr. Jennifer Pasquale, had done some research on her own. I think this was digging in old cabinets and found music that had been composed by previous choir directors. Well, one of the pieces, I talk about this in the book, Mm -hmm. one of the pieces was a piece written in 1899 by J.C. Ungerer. This, the originals were literally crumbling in your hands. We had to work from Xeroxes. And this was handwritten music. Well, if you play with music nowadays, you know, everything is computer generated. And this was like a door into another time. Yeah. And I thought, this is fascinating. Well, I wound up writing some of the program notes for that concert. And it was so interesting 
and there seemed to be so much more history just lurking beneath the surface that I thought this is something that should be explored and no one knew about it. And so you started on this this journey yes. to uh, dig up all this history. Yes. Uh, over oh, two and a half, three years, I was able to compile things. I was lucky enough to meet some descendants of some of the choir directors. Who'd you meet? I met the grandchildren of Pietro Jan, who was the choir director from the late 1920s until 1943. And he was one um, that I read in the book who had a bit of a sense of humor. Oh, yes. He had a sense of, <laughs> yes, he had a sense of humor. You yes. want to explain uh, one of the little tidbits from your book? Fifth okay. Uh, well, one, one of the best uh, family stories that I heard was when his son had met the girl, mm. who was an old family friend, but they had clicked and decided that they he really wanted to get serious about her, Jan said, by all means, bring her to dinner. And he put a whoopee cushion on her <laughs> dining room chair. So you're meeting the parents, <laughs> yeah. probably maybe a little nervous. You and, know? Uh, well, it turned out she was as good of a player as he was, and it turned out she knew how to not act- activate a whoopee cushion. So, ah. <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> so they, they knew they were going to get along instantly. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, yeah, he was he was a fun guy. Uh, he also had a dinner party when, with which he had invited some clergy and had dribble spoons for the soup course. Oh. <laughs> so he had his moments. Yeah, they were characters. Yeah, but he was um, an intense musician in the true Italian fashion, mm-hmm. and it turned out that one of his best friends was Toscanini, of course. Mm-hmm. So he was plugged into the entire New York music scene and used it and brought its richness into the cathedral. And that was a time when many churches, Catholic churches, were not that exciting musically. Mm-hmm. But I recall there was one fellow who I think the, the comment that he had made after a visit to the cathedral in those days was, I hope heaven is as good as this. Oh. So now there's over a century of information, uh, which, like I said, I I imagine was not very easy to find. So what would you say was the most surprising thing that you discovered um, about uh, St. Patrick Cathedral's musical history? I think the most surprising thing in contrast to the current day is that 100 years ago, 125 years ago, sacred music was a big thing. It was considered part of everyone's regular weekly entertainment allotment. And to that extent, there were ticket scalpers when the cathedral was first dedicated advertising in the papers that they had seats. Mm -hmm. Like they do for, you know, rock concerts now. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. It was the singers themselves were called stars. They had their pictures in the paper. The choir masters were heroes. The choirs were considered uh, very important. It was almost a Broadway kind of fame, Mm -hmm. and it's fascinating that it worked in that way because nowadays you can be a member of a church choir, you can be a soloist in a church choir, and nobody knows this. Right. Uh, But in those days, this was sort of, that is Marie-Louise Clary. Wow. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And I think what got me when I was reading your book, Fifth Avenue Famous, was you really set the stage, I believe, when you discussed how live music was it. There weren't CDs. There weren't records. The spiritual side of it was great, but there was also that entertainment value that you were talking about in your book. And people 
were, I'm not going to say shameless about it, but they were completely open about it, that they loved listening to live music because they didn't get that anywhere else. Mm -hmm. They got that in concert halls or they got that at church or in synagogues. What do you think changed over the years? Was it the attitude of the people or the change in the music? All of the above, perhaps. Mm -hmm. I think that when recorded music, radio, and television came onto the scene, it was less important for people. Uh, I'm I'm putting religious ideas aside here for okay. a second. The, if you wanted to go and hear music, you the person who in 1900 would be searching out a great church choir might just have a recording to play. Mm-hmm. Or there would be more choral societies to listen to. There were a lot of choral societies back in the olden days, but many of them were not very good at all, so people stayed away to some extent. Mm-hmm. So there was that and the fact that with broadcast music free, with recorded music cheap, plentiful, and good to listen to, I think that uh, the necessity for live music coming out of a choir loft was less the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, I mean, this has spilled into many churches nowadays, which some, which some of them use canned music as accompaniments, pre-recorded things. Right. Uh, I'm told about for the entertainment value. For the entertainment value, and there are hymnals which operate on screens as if they're karaoke. Mm-hmm. So I've never seen one, but I've heard about this, and I didn't believe it. I thought people were joking with me, but turns out that's the case. Yeah, and there was this. Um there was a challenge at one point between the entertainment value of the music in the uh, early beginnings of St. Patrick's Cathedral and the more spiritual aspect. Oh, absolutely. You want to talk about that? Absolutely. Uh, this was sort of the big bang uh, in, in Catholic music. This happened at the end of 1903. The Pope Pius X, who had been installed that year, had had a problem with the entertainment value of, of Catholic music being too entertaining. Mm-hmm. And in, and indeed, in Italy, there were many choirs that would just slap operatic numbers into the, into the loft without even changing the words, and they'd say, great, that's church, it's music, it's pretty. Well, some of it was correct and some of it is not, since opera is not church. Right. There's a spiritual component there, that's lacking. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Uh, there was one point where the the Pope mentioned at one mass hearing a duet from an opera, but in the opera it takes place between two druid priestesses. Mm-hmm. So I think he had a problem with that. What was the opera? Norma. Mm-hmm. So uh, he, when he was settled, uh, wrote uh, what is called a motu proprio, which is a papal document that is uh, his own choice. And this was stating that from henceforth, Catholic music would have to be more suitable and to the Catholic service. And as far as he was concerned, because musicians were ministers, that meant that women could no longer take part in the music. Mm-hmm. So most of the year of 1904 was a hail of headlines. Uh, this is again. This is the 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 environment that was generated back then. That this could create headlines. There is a photo of the Easter parade, 1904. But if you look in the background, it was taken in front of St. Patrick's. You see crowds pressing in at the door, 
because that day was a zoo in the cathedral because everyone was assuming this is the last time that you'll ever hear women at the cathedral in a major holiday. Mm -hmm. They were right. There were reporters sneaking up to the choir loft to see if women were crying. And they didn't see much of anything. Uh, It was just a crowd, Mm -hmm. just a huge crowd. And the idea that there was this sort of huge attention, uh, it was an uncomfortable attention because a lot of musicians don't bargain for that. Mm -hmm. But it uh, it was a tough time because personally I can see where the Pope had a point. Right. But scripturally. Scripturally, yeah, mm-hmm. but then again, throwing out an entire gender. It changed the music. Oh, it changed it hugely. Uh, there are people who say that the music didn't really recover from that as far as the quality of the work that was done for about 10 to 20 years because they had to rebuild entirely using boy choristers, boy sopranos, and they had to train them, and there wasn't all that much of a, tra- uh, of a tradition of that in New York City. So, and Salvatore, you say um, in your book, Fifth Avenue Famous, which I found was funny, sometimes um, the uh, heads of the choir would actually have to go and get the, the young boys who were outside, like, uh, rustling around and, and, and yes. wrestling around and, and, and having a good time and then drag them in so that they could, you know, sing like angels. <laughs> yes, I, I only heard of that happening at Protestant churches, so I don't know if that was the case at Catholic churches. <laughs> he says that with a little... A little grin, yeah. <laughs> This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon speaking with author Salvatore Basil about his newly published book, Fifth Avenue Famous, on the history of music at St. Patrick's Cathedral. Now, Salvatore, early in the church, there were the two big controversies uh, that took place. The first we dealt with about the removal of female singers, and the second was um, a problem with Gregorian chants. That is ongoing to this day. Is it? So to chant or not to chant, what was the controversy? Basically. A chant has existed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, yes. It has always been a very approved, very recommended form of music for a worship service. Initially, when the motu proprio came in, and in New York, that was, or at least at St. Patrick's, that was sort of late 1904, which is when the women disappeared, Mm -hmm. and it was an entirely male ensemble. There were a few services that were almost nothing but chant. There were people at times who who were recommending that nothing but chant should exist in a service. It's an interesting idea, but if you've ever attended what they call a Tridentine Mass, it is a a style unto itself, and it throws out a lot of music. It throws out Mozart and Haydn and many great compositions. And there was such such a thing at the time called a blacklist. And the idea that Mozart was on a blacklist is, it was it was a very severe measure. And this move towards Gregorian chants happened because, why? Because of the entertainment slash less than spiritual value of the music? Yes, they were mm-hmm. trying to make it something that was absolutely spiritual and not to be confused with entertainment value. Mm-hmm. That those were different items and don't get them confused. Salvatore, when did the music change from Gregorian chants to a more contemporary style? That started, I'd say, actually the 1910s, 1920s. Uh, You began to get composers like Pietro Jan, who was instantly popular with his music because it was very melodic, 
very listenable. It observed the requirements of the church, but it was bringing in, well, what I call the pleasure of voices. And that began to get its own momentum by the time that Jan was at the cathedral in the 20s and 30s. Because he headed up the music department. He was using a great deal of his own music, and absolutely no one was complaining because it's wonderful music. And that had given impetus to many other people to think in that sense. By the time you get to the 1960s, that's when it turned into something that was referencing folk and then rock, and then the whole thing became anybody's game. Right. All over again. All over again, (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, There was not, because the church was stricter about certain things in the 20s, the early part of the century, you weren't getting references to popular music, but you were getting them in the later part of the century. And now you're saying there is a move in St. Patrick's Cathedral to more Gregorian chants. You're learning more about them. You're incorporating them in the music? We are incorporating them. It isn't that we're replacing specific numbers with Gregorian chant. It's that we're adding them into the service. Things that might have been spoken will now be chanted. That adds, I think it adds a lot of dimension. I think it adds a lot of beauty. Mm-hmm. And it's a, from a musician's standpoint, it's a great part of your education. And do you have a favorite memory from your experience as a a choir member? Uh, There have been intense memories that have not been happy memories, but have been necessary memories in the wake of Mm 9-11. I remember being the cantor for what they call the Month's Mind Mass, which was uh, one month after October 11th. Mm -hmm. And singing the 23rd Psalm and seeing a woman who was doubled over in the aisle Mm -hmm racking with sobs and in a way that is very tough to do but you're doing something that is very necessary at that time and it's a responsibility and you have to fulfill it if you have that job right so in a way that's an honor i'm robin shannon on 90.7 wfuv speaking with cathedral historian salvatore basil about his book fifth avenue famous the extraordinary story of music at saint patrick's cathedral stay with us more fordham conversations is ahead Hi, I'm George Bodarki. New York City is full of surprises, and we love discovering them each week on Cityscape. It's a show we like to describe as an exploration of the people, places, and spirit of New York. Listen for it Saturday mornings at 7.30, right after Fordham Conversations. You never know what we'll discover. Join the community of WFUV members creating great radio with their financial support. Visit WFUV.org for details. Salvatore Basil, in your book, Fifth Avenue Famous, you not only touch on the music of the church, you also have some pretty interesting historical tidbits. So tell me about the one boy soprano who, in your book, you said, quote, gave singing legend Bing Crosby a run for his money. Oh, yes. That was Arthur Jarrett, who later became Art Jarrett. Uh, Now, who is he? If you have ever seen the movie Dancing Lady with Joan Crawford, he he is her vaudeville partner. Ah, okay. It's a very high voice. My dancing lady, there's nobody like you. You find such pleasure in doing what you do. How he could be competing with Bing Crosby is not my particular taste, but at, at the time he was a radio superstar. And uh, quite wealthy and quite successful, and he had started as a boy soprano in the in the cathedral choir in the in the teens. 
And you also mentioned a choir boy who grew up to become the head of a crime ring. <laughs> yes, this was uh, this was a liability for Pietro Jan at the time he was conduct- who was a choir master at the who time. Who was a choir master? Mm-hmm. He was conducting at Saint Francis Xavier, and one of his choir boys, later, uh, not too much later, decided to form a ring that would use taxi cabs to uh, to get quickly to and from robberies. Oh wow! And then on the witness stand, he tried to protest that he had started out as a good guy and pointed out that he had been in the St. Francis Choir. (laughs) So you should let him off. Yes. I don't think it worked. (laughs) Now, Salvatore, is there an overall theme or message about um, music in Fifth Avenue Famous, your book? I didn't start trying to form a message because I really didn't know how the story was going to turn out. Mm -hmm. I didn't or how it would how it would end because it hasn't ended. Right. In fact, at the end of the book, I simply refer to the last chapter as epilogue question mark, because there isn't an epilogue and it's impossible to say what will happen in an ongoing institution. Mm-hmm. I think if there is a message, it's that uh, everything changes and the only thing constant is cha- what is the uh, the old <laughs> yeah. French phrase? Yeah, you know, the only thing that is constant is, is change. change. It is astonishing because the same. Things that would happen nowadays happened in 1900 or in 1880 or in 1860. It's, it's uh, in a Examples? way, it's very, well, the idea of, actually, I'm going back to the old cathedral, one of the very first monster benefits ever held as a star-studded concert that would raise money for a worthy cause at Old St. Patrick's Cathedral in 1826 was something called the Orphan's Benefit. This was to raise money for the orphan asylum. And the very first Italian opera company had come to New York for a season. And there was uh, the star soprano, Maria Malibran, who agreed to sing a benefit concert at the cathedral in order to raise money. Well, this was an automatic draw. At the time, however... The cathedral choir was made up of men who did not believe that they should be forced to do things like read music. Well, it turned out that what she had to sing was music that was beyond their scope, and they bowed out of the concert. And because they bowed out of the concert, they were not offered free tickets to the concert. Mm-hmm. And because they were not offered free tickets to the concert, the entire choir resigned as, oh. as in a group. And this was a month of back and forth in the newspapers. I guess New York didn't have that much to talk about in those (laughs) days. But they came back at the end of that time and uh, were absolutely firm in their belief that they had done nothing wrong and that the trustees were firm in their belief that they had done nothing wrong. There lies the controversy. Yes. And the fact that this happened almost 200 years ago is kind of comforting when you think about it. (laughs) to know that everyone's egos are exactly the same. (laughs) So, Salvatore, St. Patrick's Cathedral is a New York landmark. It's a cultural institution in addition to being a house of worship. So how did these various roles develop? I think that the second it opened, it was all all of those things because... Open on Fifth Avenue. Yeah. At that time, that was the largest house of worship in America, which impressed people greatly. Uh, It's... It's funny, to, uh, we're used to skyscrapers as a, as a matter of course, but at that time, New York really had buildings that were 
1879, church steeples were kind of it Mm -hmm. for great structures. Mm -hmm. A building tended to be six stories. It wasn't until the 1880s when they began elevator architecture, as they called it, that we began to get skyscrapers. Because who wanted to walk up all those steps? (laughs) Exactly. So this was very impressive. And not only was it impressive, but they had opened it with a great ceremony. And this was so attractive to so many people. Now, William F. Pesher, who was the director of music at the time, had decided that he wanted a big choir with a big sound. He worked at that assiduously. And in a sense, he was offering what a lot of choir masters in New York were not offering. He was offering big music. Mm-hmm. And a lot, of, a lot of Sundays, regular Sundays, would be with an orchestra. Mm-hmm. This was an amazing thing to many people. So it became instantly popular. That was one of the reasons. Uh, the music helped. The structure helped. You had Archbishop McCloskey, who was, excuse me, Cardinal McCloskey. By that time, he was Cardinal, definitely. And he was a draw, so it was simply something that was, call it, preordained success. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it had really never changed after that point. St. Patrick's Cathedral has a special connection to Fordham University here in the Bronx. Can you share what that is with us? Well, I know you have the old altar, for one thing. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I'm talking about. And I've never seen it. And now that I'm up here, maybe I should take a look. Yeah, yes. why not walk all over there? Now, Salvatore, let's talk a little about you. Uh, you're not only an author, you are, as you stated earlier, part of St. Patrick's Choir. So how did this develop? This happened, well, uh, this happened in the wake of a tragedy, which was the death, uh, Christmas morning, 1997, of John Michael Caprio, the music director. At that time, they had in the choir a bass soloist John Calvin West, who was not only a singer, but a conductor. And he had been moved into the position of interim music director. They were planning a concert, and John realized as the as 1998 started that he was going to be busy waving a stick rather than being able to sing, and he needed a substitute quickly. And a friend of his recommended me. I went in to meet him. I had the shortest audition of my life, bless him, six bars of music, (laughs) at which he just said, oh, you'll be fine. Would you like to share what you sang? Absolutely not. (laughs) I thought you were going to say absolutely. This is radio. That would have been awesome. (laughs) It was part of the Mozart Requiem. I'll Mm -hmm. say say that much. Mm -hmm. But uh, we had enjoyed working together. He asked me to stay on for Holy Week. And then as the season was beginning, the new season, he asked me if I'd come aboard. And I was delighted. And I've been there ever since. So now, um, what does the role and responsibility of being this historian, this keeper of Catholic history, Catholic musical history, what does that mean to you? It's fascinating that the cathedral did have an archivist. And he did write a history of the cathedral. This was the cathedral itself. But... Not being a musician, there were things that he did not notice mm. that would be links. It is It works better for a musician to be that kind of historian, to do that kind of looking, than it does for a regular archivist who might not be musical and might not say, oh, him, I know what he did. Mm-hmm. 
So, And I would also think that there would be a fear, as you stated earlier, that um, musical copy you had was, was you know, breaking up and tearing, mm-hmm. that if that happened with a number of musical pieces or a number of newspaper articles about St. Patrick's Cathedral, that the history would be gone. This is something which uh, I'm going to assume this is every historian, every archivist in any, in, in any field, any place. I remember being told there, there was a period where the cathedral had had a number of choir directors in a row. And I remember hearing that at one point the choir loft was being cleared of cases of old music. Mm. And at the time... And by I wa- cleared, you mean gotten rid of? Garbage. Oh, wow. At the time, it didn't register with me, but in the light of what I've done nowadays, that makes me sweat because mm-hmm. I think, what went? Yeah, what did I miss? Mm-hmm. Are you going to continue with adding on to the history of, uh, of St. Patrick's? Well, as long as they'll let me into the, you know, into the back doors, yes. <laughs> <laughs> My thanks to cathedral historian Salvatore Basil. His book, Fifth Avenue Famous, The Extraordinary Story of Music at St. Patrick's Cathedral, is published by Fordham Press. You can also find out more about this author, his writings, or follow his blog at salvatorebasil.com. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. You can hear Fordham Conversations every Saturday at 7 a.m. You can also friend us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and catch up on past shows with our weekly podcast. Stay with us. George Bodarkey and Cityscape are next on WFUV. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon. You'll see in the sky with the